So welcome everyone to another episode of Checkmate, a political podcast by Tenement Yard Media. Um, if you really have time on your decks or your work at home um, and need entertainment, you can check out our historical podcast, Let's We Forget, which traces historical events um, that happens in Jamaica. Understand? Um, we really should have done an episode about Bustamante and the whole bauxite mining fiesta in the 1960s. But another another day, another day, and that's another day, another time. But um, we still have like a touch by mining in this episode, right? We still have like a touch by mining. So the Jamaica Environmental Trust, um, we're just going to go JET, because I don't know if they pronounce JET, so we're just going to go JET. Um, they dropped a publication a couple of weeks ago called Red Dirt. Um, it's a multidisciplinary review of the bauxite alumina, alumina industry in Jamaica, right? And I have the past chairman and director of um, Jamaica Environmental Trust, Diana McCauley, um, here with us to speak. You understand? If you, know, if you don't know Miss McCauley, I don't know if I tell you. Like, she, she always up on radio, she always up on TV. Um, last year when the government decides to yo, they make act smart and do them one man in the purport to be in the shows like everywhere. Um, along with the other well not other along with the other um young um climate change activists. Um so yeah, if you don't know I'm not going to tell you. Um she's also author of Dog Heart, Huracan Gone to Drift, White Liver Girl and Daylight Come. I highly re- recommend the last one. Um Daylight Come is a great book. Um, you can go ahead and just buy a copy at Rebel Women Lit. You know, support black businesses, queer businesses, you know. And plus, Rebel Women Lit have signed copies from Miss McCauley herself. So I just vibes. It's even just vibes. So get a tell over there, Rebel Women Lit, <laughs> right? And if you don't want to, you can also skip down, go on our website, which is tenementyamida.com. Scroll down to the end. Rebel Women Lit is our neighbor of the month. And that will take you directly to our website. And... Click the link where you see that will take a dive to their website and then you can just buy the book there and deliver on a bag of niceness and become a wrap, a bag of niceness. So big up Jerry and everybody over there. But yeah, we're going to talk about the publication Red Dirt. Uh, Miss McCauley, welcome to the yard. Very happy to have you here. Um, you can just go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, good morning. Thanks. No, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, I prefer Diana, so feel free to call me Diana and not so much with the Miss McCauley stuff. Um, so like you say, I've been an environmental activist for, well, 30 years this year. I can't really believe it. And over those years, since about 2006, um, JET has been working on bauxite mining in cockpit country. Now, everybody know the importance of cockpit country, right? And you, and you started your introduction. And congratulations on your podcast, by the way, because I, I also think... We don't spend enough time understanding where we're coming from. And I think it is important to do that before you know where you can go to. Okay. So everybody knows the importance of copy country. I mean, it's a very important part of our history. It's where the Maroons fought the British to a treaty. And it is also an important forest area. So it still has a big chunk of our remaining forest and fearlessness. We only have about 8% of our natural forests left in Jamaica. The rest of it has been removed. And there's people who live in Copic country. They live around the outskirts of Copic country. Copic country sits over a big amount of underground water. So, you know, lots of us are very short of freshwater supplies in Jamaica, even today. So, especially when you think about the very likely impacts of the climate crisis to our water supplies, protecting, you know, those areas which collect underground water is very important. Bauxite mining since about 2006, as I said, it has been the subject of plans to mine for bauxite. So, and that is what JET has been working on since, since that time. And if I tell different ways, you know, with some of the communities who will be most affected on the law 
And during his work, we, we had a big meeting, and I think it was late 2018 or 20, maybe 20, late 2019. We had a meeting with all lots of the stakeholders, so community members, non-government groups in the area, government agencies and companies. And in that meeting, it was pointed out that there was no really comprehensive study on what bauxite mining had meant, mining and processing had meant, you know, where it would start looking at everything, not just the dollar value that is often hear about, but what have, what have the costs? What has this money that we've earned really cost us? try and do that study. You know, JET is a small organization and it never had, would not have ever had the amount of people on staff, experts to write such a study. So we wrote a grant to get funding to do it. And we sent out a call for proposals and people, people applied and we had a select committee and we said, we selected the people who actually wrote the study. And they're all, they have different, different qualifications, different backgrounds. And, and what JET did was we supported them in trying to get the information. So, of course, they had to start out with trying to get information. And as you might know, Jamaica has an Access to Information Act. So some of the information owned by government is available to the public. So that is one of the main things JET did was helping to get the information for the authors so they could write their study. And we also did an editing function. And then we helped with the... Uh, Helped to, with the graphic design and printing of the book. It was released in, in December and we had a public meeting, a sort of Zoom, a, pub, a virtual public meeting in January so that we presented the main findings and people could ask questions. So I'll stop there just because I can talk for the entire time. <laughs> I understand. That's the background to red dirt. And it, yeah, yeah, it's the time it. we've really looked at what the bauxite alumina industry has cost Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to say that if you go to the website of the Jamaica Environmental Trust, you're going to see, like, in the, what do you call it, announcement bar, that does go up on a page. You understand? That's Jamaica, just type in Jamaica Environment, Environment Trust in Google, yeah, whatever search engine you use, right? And the, the you see new publication, Red Dirt. Um, There is the Red Dirt book, and then there's the Red Dirt executive summary. So if you want the full breadth and depth of what it said, then the Red Dirt book, or if, um, I'm not going to say light reading, but um, if uh, you want like the, 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 you know, a shorter version of what the Red Book say, the executive summary is there. But, you know, information is key always. So just read the big book. You know, dice it up. Make a, make a, a book club out of it. You understand? It's a, it's, a, it's a very, I would say it's a scary read because them still are mine. Right? So, them just still are mine. So, in the I say it's a scary mind. Um, so, you can do that. Also, Tenement Yard Media, if you go to our website, go to Checkmate. No, I like, go to Podcast Checkmate, click Episode 7. Right? <laughs> you will see a link that will take you directly to um the Jamaica Environmental Environment Trust page. So you have options to see um the the, the publication in question. All right. So Diana. All right. Diana. 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 Right. My friends call me D. <laughs> my friends call me D. Is that better? <laughs> uh, let's stick with Diana. Let's stick with okay. Diana. Um, <laughs> um, all right. So we have a history, a historical podcast. Let's see if we forget because we believe in the importance that everything that has happened in Jamaica has a beginning stage and it does affect us, um, a whole generation. So, just for you know, of, of what we are known for, right? Can you speak a bit about the history of bauxite mining in Jamaica? Yeah, what say, oh, we're gonna do an episode from Buster, but you know. We know all that rich, so can't do that right now. But can you like go into what the 1960s, we know Manly and the 70s, and the whole nationalization and what happened in the 80s and stuff? But can you give us a like a, a brief history of bauxite mining in Jamaica? So it basically started, they discovered bauxite in Jamaica in the late 1950s. So, worldwide, this was after the end of the Second World War. And there were many countries who were expanding their industrial capacity. And of course, bauxite is used to make aluminum, 
which is a very versatile and valuable metal that has been important for many, many things, but it's a part of our modern societies. So I don't want to play that down or pretend that's not the case, right? So in, in the late 1950s, it was discovered here in, in Jamaica. And Jamaica has, at one point, Jamaica was one of the, if was the largest producer of bauxite in the world. But it was very quickly taken over by Australia and others as more countries began to, to find the, the red dirt, which is why our study is called, is called red dirt. So initially, big um, foreign companies came into Jamaica and they acquired land and sought leases from the state so that they could mine. And mining in Jamaica is governed by a mining act, which essentially one of the main things it says is that the minerals on land are belong to the government, belong to the state. So you can own land, you can own your farm in wherever, but the minerals under the ground don't belong to you. So you can imagine you might be a farmer and you might have a few acres of family land. If they buy box, if they find bauxite on it, you, they, they are entitled to claim the minerals. You, they, you, you either have to sell the land to them at a price to be negotiated, or you can stay where you are and get royalties from the bauxite. But you, it, people have found that it, that is not a practical option because the mining is going on all around them, right? And it's just not a healthy situation and they can't do their traditional livelihoods of farming and so forth. Then in the seventh, so, so that's what happened with the, let's just say just broadly in the 60s, the companies came in, they acquired land and they started to build things that we in Jamaica just take for granted, you know, the bauxite ports, so the ports that's at near Ochi, um, Discovery Bay on, this, on the south coast. And they, so they put in all this infrastructure ports, roads, rail, rail lines that transport the bauxite from where it's mined in the interior to the coast where it can be put on a ship. And the companies were doing well out of it. In the 1970s, under the PNP administration, the, um, the, that government felt that Jamaica was not getting enough from this arrangement, which is essentially, you know, when you think about it, shipping out our dirt, right? Um, some, some of it was processed here, and at some point I want to talk about the difference between mining and processing because they have different impacts, different, different things happen depending whether all you're doing is mining or whether you're doing mining and processing, right? Mm -hmm. So the PNP put in a bauxite levy, and that was a sum of money that the bauxite companies had to, had to pay to the Jamaican government. And they also instituted a program of buying back some of the land that had been bought by the overseas companies. That money did flow into Jamaica in the 1970s and did fund a lot of very progressive social programs. Yeah, you know, over money and the social programs. Right. So which were a characteristic of that era. Mm -hmm. So I want to say very straight and plain that the money that we got for bauxite in those early years was used for good things for Jamaica and Jamaicans. And let me just say, if anybody want more information on that, we have about 50 different episodes. I like me until I like six. I like three, <laughs> if mm -hmm. being honest, about Manley and his um, governance in the 70s and blah, blah, blah. Like, you can go and check out all of that. Over lest we forget. So yeah. So Miss Diana. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So 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 that that was what was happening. Of course, at that time, right in the late sixties, early seventies to mid seventies and stuff, nobody had thought about what was the harm of this industry. Right. Environmental thinking about public health and and damage to the land and water supplies and animals and stuff is, is, is relatively new. I mean, of course, there were a few people who were concerned about it, but it did not become really a movement until the, the late 70s, certainly not in this part, part of the world, right? So nobody had really thought about the costs. And I'll tell you a little, a little story. One time, my husband and I, when I was, as a young person, was thinking about migrating, right? And we, I went and got a picture of the bauxite red mud lake 
at Yotan, which used to drive past on the old road, because I thought it was beautiful, you know, this body of what I thought was reddish water in among all these trees in a valley. But that, that's actually toxic waste. Mm, that's seeping down into the groundwater. Right, and, yeah. and, and very harmful on its own. So we weren't, I don't think we knew in the early days of bauxite what some of the, some of the costs would be. It hadn't mm-hmm. studied yet, it, and, and they were not apparent to us. But as time went on, we began to realize some of the harm that this industry was causing. And one of the places that was early to be recognized was the question of the waste. So I think there's about an equal amount. If you're an engineer, maybe you know more about this than I do. But it's about an equal amount of waste produced for every ton of bauxite mine. Mm-hmm. You have to decide where you're going to put that. And in the early days, it was just put in online ponds and because Jamaica has a lot of its freshwater supplies that are underground, about 84%. People don't know that. People think most of our rain, most of our freshwater comes from rain or surface rivers, but it, mm-hmm. it, most of it comes from underground water. So it began to be clear that the, the, mud, the mud lakes were contaminating underground water. And the people who lived close to the mining, often the roads, right? And, and, and also the processing facilities, they started to complain about the damage to their roofs because the roofs said the zinc roofs would start to rust, the damage to their crops because the crops just wouldn't grow, and the damage to their health. There was a lot more respiratory illnesses in when you were living close to either mining operation, the road, or the bauxite plant. And so there needed to be, so there began to be more concern about not just the revenue side of bauxite, but the costs, right? And then, of course, the companies never like what the bauxite levy, they never like what the Manly administration had done. So they started to, they got together, they organized, and they also started to look for other, other countries with bauxite who perhaps wouldn't take that same approach. And so sometime in the 80s, Jamaica began to lose its, sort of dominant position that it had had in, in the 70s. And it was there then not able to really negotiate for, you know, the kinds of things that, they, that the, the government might have wanted. So eventually the bauxite levy was discontinued and the situation that now exists is there's an agreement between the current bauxite companies, which are now completely different from the ones that started out, where there is a sharing of the profits from bauxite mining and processing in Jamaica. But you might know that really does give the power to the companies because they're in a position to really, you know, say what profits they make. They can, they can make it that their profits seem less than they really are. And that's the situation that we have now. So we, the employment has also, um, it's about the same, at the same numbers of full-time employee, employees, but I think the, 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 the short-term ones, the ones who don't work year-round, which is often where a lot of the communities benefit, I think those numbers are much lower than they, than they used to be. I have a bad memory for numbers, so anybody who's a numbers person should really look at the study where the numbers are put in there, you know, to the extent we were able to find them out. So the question now for the other thing I'll say, because as you point out, this is a very complicated subject. But the other thing I'll say is that the it was the Manly government put in place the requirements for reclaiming the bauxite pits. So after you go and you dig out this this pit and you transport the the dirt either to a facility where it's going to be processed to the next stage, which is alumina, not aluminum. We don't have any smelters here in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Or it's sometimes just shipped out on a boat. They, um, what do you do with this hole in the ground, right? So the Manly administration put in place the, the requirements for the reclamation of those areas because they, the thought was, okay, there is going to be an impact to the land for the, for the life of the mine, mining lease, but we can put back the soil and re- reclaim it and plant back um, plants and stuff there. That was the thinking then. But it, it has become clear that the reclamation requirements that they, that are, exist under the law are inadequate to 
restore definitely not forests or biodiversity. All right, got you. Also got you. not agricultural productivity. There's this rhetoric where it's as if we can go in, mine, blast a whole lot of trees, and then plant six, and it's good. But we'll soon come back to this. We'll soon come back to that. Come back to that. Can we have beef with that with that thinking? All right. So you went into the history of the backside industry. Now, um, having read through the Red Dirt publication, all right. Um, can you go into details? And it's, it's really three steps. You have the environment, rural communities, and human health, right? But um, just, ju- just to start it off, we're going to dissect red dirt, right? Can you speak on the, the impact that it has on the environment directly? So I know you touch on the impact of the, of the, the, the groundwater, groundwater storage, right? So you don't forget too much. So you don't forget to talk a lot about the water, you know? Just, guys, just think about it. You have the, the backside on the land, water percolate down, infiltrate, and uh, infiltrate and percolate. Jesus, God, majority mm-hmm. So you go down, right? <laughs> and then they contaminate groundwater storage. Uh, yeah, all that. But can you speak more on um, the other environmental um, impact that the backside industry has? All right. So if you know backside land, well, there's backside mining going on in different parts of the country, right? But Often the bauxite exists in the valleys. So if you take a place like Copper Country, which you know look like a kind of overturned egg box, so it has hills and valleys, and other areas also have these valleys. The bauxite is mostly in the valleys. And in a lot of cases, the forest has already been removed from the valleys because that is where small farmers are growing their crops, right? So you'll often hear the bauxite industry say they don't have a big impact on the forestry because the forests remain on the hills. Mm-hmm. But it, this, it, it displays a lack of understanding about how a forest ecosystem works. And it discounts the role of the roads. So the, what a, you know, a bauxite mining operation has to build roads so that the bauxite can come up. And those roads are often what causes the main impacts the biodiversity because those ones don't necessarily just follow um, the, the valleys or don't, don't, not necessarily just confined to the valleys and they can take out a lot of forest and they can also allow access. So if you think about copper country, still a lot of it is, is very hard to access. Right? You have to prepare to hike to go see it. And that is of course great for plants and animals and forests and percolation into the groundwater, all those good things. But if you start driving a road through that now, all of a sudden, everybody can go in. People start cutting down trees for the lumber. They start cutting down trees for yam sticks. They, they might clear more land for agriculture, even if it's on a steeper slope. And that is, why you, that, that is when you start having the impacts to the environment. And the animals that live there, they, they move around, right? They don't just stop in one place. And so... Bauxite mining and that kind of development, which really disturbs what is planted on the land, that interrupts those corridors for animals. And I know everybody don't like bat and all of that, but there's a lot of bats in the country. Well, in many parts of Jamaica, and they eat mosquitoes in. So if we kind of don't want the, the sprays for mosquitoes, which have those impacts on our health, we want our bats to keep, keep insect populations down. Some of our bats are pollinators, so they're why we have fruit trees. So they're very important in the environment. Now, I completely understand why nobody don't want our bat in them house, but we need the bats to stay in their habitat, and we people need to stay out of that habitat. You understand? Yes, that's the same thing I say about lizards. Yes, that's right. exactly the same thing well, I say. Well, I don't know about you, but my house is full of lizards. But luckily, I like them, so it's all right. Wow, wow. Um, I have pet lizards, so I'm very much... Um... <laughs> very much empathetic <laughs> to the way people treat them and the, really? and the stereotype of them but it's fine it's fine yeah so that that's it those are the environmental impacts that you're talking about going into areas natural areas which are forested or part, partially forested that have a lot of mm-hmm. plants and animals and you're disturbing it to a very great degree and you're disturbing it in a way that cannot be rectified afterwards all right got you um so you spoke about the environment and 
Kakwe country, which is on the uh, remember get my compass now, it no, that's the western end of the island, right? And you kind of have this conversation on the impact that it has have on the rural communities. I know um couple weeks ago, I want to say Stevie J. I'm just gonna go for it. I say Stevie J did a report about um some of the marginalized communities that have been impacted by mining, and those are Rastafarians again. You know, we have a whole episode on Tivoli Gardens and Baku Wall and how the government went in and just, you know, scrape up poor bodies, poor black bodies from where they might live. Go listen to the episode. Just, yeah. Let's we forget. Just go over there. And, you know, people don't have nowhere to live. You understand? And we continue to see that happening now, right? Because, as um Diana said, you know, go, if, if Mineral Day, the government can go in and basically say, oh, you're <laughs> paid. And, yeah, I mean, um, persons, you know, the whole red dirt, and you got a funeral and burial yard, and yeah, we know the story of, you know, brush off his shoes after because red dirt, blah, blah, blah. But can you speak on the effects that um miners have directly on the rural communities and population density and on and, and marginalized groups um in specifically, even farmers as well, because they're being impacted by mining? Right. So one of the shocking things for me in doing this work was discovering how little effort the state, and I'm talking about the state over the almost 70 years of this industry, right, has made to collect data on exactly that question. So we couldn't even find out how many people had been displaced. So they basically have not kept or, or at least we could not get them. You know, sometimes you don't know if things don't exist versus they just refuse to give you. But we could not find out how many people have been displaced because of bauxite mining. And we could not find out what the result of bauxite mining displacement had been on rural populations, right? Because it's just not studied in that way. So if you think about St. Anne, and maybe there was, you know, there's bauxite mining going on in Sentan, and maybe some people were moved from rural area into a place like Brownstone, you know, so from a rural area into, you know, a sort of semi-urban environment. There's no way to tell whether the brown and the brownstone population is growing. There's no way to tell whether the brownstone population is growing because of the displacement of people from bauxite. We never tried to find that out. So, and I think that is a real, that is one of the main failings, I would say, of, of the conclusions that we drew from this study is how the government, both administrations for almost 70 years have really refused to look clean and straight at the industry. We did a lot of interviews with people in, you know, the rural communities, we call loosely bauxite communities, and they were adamant that the bauxite had really had a, adverse impact, a bad, a bad impact on their, their lives, their communities, and their livelihoods. So whatever, most of them were small farmers. They did not feel the land was fertile afterwards. Sometimes if they were just close to the mining or processing, so, that, so there were emissions from the air falling on their crops, it, they, their crops didn't bear. And they, they thought that bauxite mining had really ushered in Kind of, kind of crime and other sorts of anti-social behavior. But like I said, because it's not really been studied, we couldn't draw a firm conclusion about that. That is what the people who live there say. Now, of course, some people benefited, right? Some people got jobs in the bauxite industry and, you know, they, maybe their children, themselves and their children were better off. But there's a whole section of people that have not benefited. And how I think about it is, it's an unequal sacrifice that we're asking. So those of us who don't live near to bauxite mining and, and processing, we might benefit from the income that bauxite brings into the government in other ways, right? So government has more income and it can do the things we all want. It wants to spend money on, you know, whatever, schools, hospitals, roads, garbage collection, but we don't have to live next to it. So I think that is one of the main things we have to ask ourselves. Is it okay to ask one set of people to sacrifice their lives, their communities, their livelihoods, so that another set of people can benefit? And I have never found it 
possible to stand up in front of people who are concerned about their lives and their livelihoods and their communities and tell them, you are the ones being sacrificed. Just hug it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that's a range of things. There's displacement. People, people have been promised things that were never delivered. So people have been told that when they get to the new location, they'll get more land than they had in the old location. And when they get there, it's true in, if you just consider acreage, but the land might not be fertile. So even though it's more land in total, it's not as good for growing crops. Or they were promised things like schools and health clinics, and when they got there, there were no such things. And they lost their community connections, you know, the, the stuff that bound them together and made them a community when they were displaced, they lost all of that. Mm-hmm. So they, they think that they lost a lot. And you can still drive around Jamaica and see, you know, bauxite communities where lots of people were displaced. And they're kind of sad places, you know, their populations have died. There's a lot of, not died, have, have reduced. There's a lot of derelict buildings, um, a lot of unemployment, a lot of sad people. I think you can see that if you drive around the rural countryside where bauxite people were moved from. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is a this is a well, is sidetrack the word no is sidetrack I don't know I don't know where you're going <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> I don't know and about bauxite directly but I know a couple of years ago um you produce direct we're gonna go produce um you produce Jamaica for sale right which um it was really Esther Figaro um Dr Esther Figaro who's a very very talented filmmaker. I mean, we helped, but it was really her creative work. You see, this is why. This is, credit this is credit where credit is due, you know? So you let people name. Because honestly, I couldn't, I really and truly cannot pronounce her name. But I can't describe her. That's all I yeah. said. I can't describe her, right? Well, no, um, you worked on that film a couple of years ago, which spoke on the um the, 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 the social impacts of tourism and unsustainable development um, of Jamaica. And um, as you speak, about um disenfranchised people being left outside of development um clips and the discussion around that film kind of brought to mind and that film was what 2005 or 06 or 07 10 years ago no i know i think it was 08 yeah no i was in primary school 10 years ago like 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 i say i don't have a good memory for numbers (laughs) i got you got you but um if anybody wants to that film it still exists online i think you can go and watch it i don't and think you can watch it online anymore you know you can't no mm-hmm. because i think because it, you know you to, to do a film like that you have to get permission to use the music that's in it ah yes and yes, okay. the permission we had ran out after 10 years got you got you got you got you well um but the issues it, it raises are still very topical issues because we're still appro- we're still approaching tourism in the same way Exactly. So as I'm yes, yeah, so if anybody wanna know about the film, DM me. Um me tell about it. It's fine. Me walk it through. Um, <laughs> all right. So um all right, so Miss Diana, um so you touch on the environment and the rural um effects of the mine industry. Now I want to directly go just off rural environment but to human health, right? So we know the water, you know, and all the issues that could be consuming water. But um, as it relates to the dirt itself, the dust itself, and and especially the dust, right? Can you go into more of what the the study found in regards to the direct effects of um, um, the bauxite alum, okay. bauxite can't pronounce the word bauxite industry, yeah, and, okay. and, <laughs> and human health. So again, another shocking finding was that in the 70 years of the bauxite industry's existence in Jamaica, there has been one health impact study, which was done for the communities around Jamalco when they were expanding the Jamalco plant in Clarendon. They did a health impact study of the people around. Now, so after 70 plus years, there, there's only just one study that has been done? By the state. Um, two others were done, one by uh, a public health specialist, Patrice mm-hmm. Charles, who she wrote the chapter on public health, and it was her PhD dissertation. And Jet also did a study because of our long work with bauxite communities, which where we comp- compare the public health in 
some Bafsaid communities and some other mining communities, so not just Bafsaid, but quarrying as well, with control communities, people that had no, no mining near to them. So that was it. And so, you know, it's one thing to say, all right, we're testing the air quality and the air quality is fine because you have a machine that has tested it. So some of that has been going on, but it's another thing to go and say, let us, let us see what the health impacts have been for these people that live nearby. Are they going to clinics? Are there more cases of asthma? Are we seeing, are we seeing any heart imp implications? Is it, does it have a particular impact on children? That's how you would really, is there, is there a difference between, so if you're living five miles away from the plant, you're, you're likely to see impacts, but if you're 10, you're okay, right? Mm -hmm. You would have to have studied all of that, and we have not. Mm -hmm. One That one study that was done in 2008 did not find there were any health impacts from the Jamalco expansion. But just like with the farmers, the people who live near to these places, they are very certain that they are impacted by the dust and some of the emissions as, that are different to dust. If you, if you drive through Uatan at night and you stop and stand on the side of the road for a little bit close to that plant there, you can smell the caustic smell of processing. And that is just, well, I know I would not be happy to live in, in those circumstances. I have been there, I have smelled it, and, and it's really awful. Mm -hmm. Dust that comes from either the roads, because you have these big heavy vehicles you know, transporting stuff on roads, which are very often not asphalted, they might be just marled, or the mining itself really bothers communities. One interesting thing that came out of the study that I'd never really thought about before was in copper country, how do people get water and how do animals get water? Because oh, those are like wells more, more... Well, there's no surface water, right? All the water mm -hmm. that falls from rain drains down through the limestone into this big underground aquifer. So the people who live around the country, they largely have collection from either roof collection or those big old-time cement um, sort of catchment areas that you'll see on mm -hmm. hillsides throughout rural Jamaica, right? And those, those things drain rainwater into a tank. And for the plants and for the animals that live in the country, they have these big wild pines, these big spiky looking plants that, that grow on trees and collect water in them. Nobody has studied the impact of the dust getting on these various areas, either the roofs of people or their catchment areas or into the, the natural ways in which water is collected, whether the, the dust getting into all of that is harmful in the water or, or to the animals. Not studied, not ever looked at. We don't just about know how many water catchments there are in copper country, and that's about it. So we need to look at these things, right? Because the, the dust has impacts about to your respiratory health. Just any kind of dust, you know, whether you're whether you're living right next to just a general just a regular road or a mile road or a bauxite road, it irritates your respiratory system. And some people are more susceptible to that than others. So you will never get 100% of people responding in the same way. And, it's, and it also tends to harm young people and old people more than you know, healthy young middle-aged people. So we found as well that the monitoring programs for, for the air quality were insufficient. Sometimes we found that the, where they located the machines, we did not agree with where they located the machines. We did not think that that was a, the, 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 where the modeling said the machines should be located. There were no machines. Now, this is something, this is one of the areas that the government really pushed back on and said it was not true. They challenged our findings. Mm -hmm. And I've been since, since, since that happened in January trying to get a meeting with them to sit down with their technical people and the author of our study and to, to thrash through what are the what is it what what are the things they're challenging what are they saying that is not true and i haven't been able to get that meeting all right got you um i would say um because this is my area of academia <laughs> mm -hmm. there's a direct correlation when it comes to um 
health crisis. I don't study health. That, that's what I study. <laughs> of health crisis and, 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 and population and long-term effects, right? So um, there's been like a lot of study that has been done on the, um, the what you call it? It's the industrial bel- belt of Detroit. Yeah, we're going U.S. here. And how um, uh, housing racism. So, more, more soon, more, this is going to make sense. Give me a minute for this explanation. May I say anything that makes sense? So, listen, just listen to me. Just hear me out. One of the issues that Detroit, um, there's a lot of industrial area during the, um, the, 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 with the care company name. Is a car Ford, Ford, Ford. Ford. Yeah, I, yeah. A lot of their um um industries pop up around there, and you know, uh, labor was cheap, and they employ the most vulnerable in society, which are poor black persons. And over time, as they settled, the environmental um crisis, wor- environmental crisis worsened because it is pe- pe- people are supposed to live in those conditions, right? So there's been a whole lot of study being done around that Detroit belt. And then when COVID pop up, you start to see where those long-term environmental, that long-term environmental crisis, right? So-called, so-called development has resulted in health crisis to the persons who live around there. So they are more, they're more at risk of having um, a higher percentage of dying from the COVID um, virus because of underlying crisis no when COVID pop up in a Jamaica me that look back I was like yo alright so this is what we're gonna say some study being done on say um backside communities some study being done on river especially Riverton yeah, especially Riverton um of how these environmental crises and people basic human rights being taken away because people are not supposed to be living in these areas right people are not supposed to be having um unsustainable development happening around their 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 around their housing um around their housing settlements right like what what does does the long term that environmental crisis human rights crisis and covid have um like a, a relationship like how many persons from these areas are showing about hospital um are having worse effects from covid <laughs> nobody not do it I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't have time. I don't have time. But I would really love if somebody do a study on that because it's, yeah. it's a very sad situation. So you're very right that there, that, you know, that there's all kind of data about the impacts of industrial facilities of various kinds on the public health of the people that live around. And of course, there is a environmental racism and environmental justice mm-hmm. that arise. But we couldn't, we just did not find any here. And I think mm-hmm. it's really disgraceful, you know, a 70-year industry that has done very well for itself should have funded those studies. Now, of course, you run into trouble when the industry is funding the study, right? Because of that. Yeah, definitely. You know? But they could have made the funding available to the state to do it. It could have been a requirement of their mining leases and so forth. And there could have been an arm's length, you know, approach to studying people's public health. Mm-hmm. Oh, another thing, one last thing I say about that. I think if you are a member of a bauxite community, you should be able to go online. Well, anybody actually, anybody in Jamaica who is concerned about air quality around any industrial facility that is the subject of an environmental permit should be able to go online and see the data that is being collected on that on the air quality. And it should be in a form that an expert can analyze but it should also be in a form that a lay person can understand mm-hmm. and that is not the happening yeah we talk a lot about transparency but we don't actually practice it mm-hmm. i should be able to go online and see what last week's air quality results were for any bauxite plant or mine or area in jamaica mm-hmm. i didn't have having the opportunity to even challenge that and speak to a representative who is in the industry to talk about that and um yeah, but as I said, not how many studies done here. I mean, it's very frustrating. I don't understand how persons in academia even deal with it because, as I said before, speaking about environmental justice, majority of the data you can use are from the US. And believe me, it hurt Ed. It hurt a lot of Ed because you know, nobody really want to talk about the US because their, their society is completely different from Jamaica. Completely different makeup, completely different apples and pears here. And... 
I've said a lot of time about how research and data in Jamaica is frustrating. <laughs> Let's see, forget. I've said it many times. Running a history podcast, it's extremely frustrating. And the gatekeepers of data and documents and information just don't want to have access to it. So, yeah. Um, but... Diana, is there anything else in the in the um in red dirt that was alarming that you was taken aback from that you what the public can know? Well, I've mentioned it, but I was very unprepared for the resistance to providing us with the information. Mm-hmm. You know, I've worked with the Access Information Act, which was came in in two thousand two thousand and one, a lot. I, I would I would think Jet is. As as has made as much use of it as even say the media companies, right? Mm-hmm. I thought we would get more cooperation from the state agencies than we did. There was just this lot of resistance, so I came away from it feeling that there was something being hidden, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. The, the 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 final chapter in Red Dirt, which was not done by a Jamaican, was done by a foreign a, a U.S. scientist compares the benefits and the costs, which is what most people want to know, right? Because they they understand that there are costs, but they think there are great benefits. And we we could not find, there has been no effort made to even describe, let alone quantify, the the costs of bauxite mining and processing. So in in the study, there is a long list of what those costs are, and it's probably an incomplete list. And we were only able to find data where we could apply quantities, amounts of money to two types of costs. And one was the public health costs. And it's because, as you have said, that, you know, studies have been done in other parts of the world about these same pollutants. So it's not like you're comparing a car factory with a bauxite mining. No, it's because you know what the pollutants from bauxite are. And studies have been done on the health impacts of those same pollutants. So we're able to find some data from in other parts of the world and also the carbon that's taking us into climate change now. What is the impact of the carbon emissions from bauxite mining and processing? And the costs outweigh the benefits by very, very large amounts. So what is the case that can be made for an industry which did have its benefits 50 years ago, 40 years ago, did give us certain, certain things, a lot of the bauxite that we have has already been mined, you know, we've, and we have seen the damage it has done both to our land and to our people and to our farmers. What is the case that can be made for continuing to do this now that we know the costs far outweigh the benefits? Now that we know that the climate that we all have grown up in and has sustained our civilizations is now under threat and probably is not going to be around, certainly not for your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, don't under, I don't understand yeah. what argument can be made to continue an industry where the costs outweigh the benefits. Mm-hmm. And, and I just want to read... Thing I say. Yeah, and I just want to read the, the conclusion that's in um, majority. Um, and this is executive summary, right? Big up, Abby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so uh, it says the social cost of the bauxite alumina industry far exceed its economic benefits to Jamaica. Using only two categories of social costs, the industry's social costs exceed the economic benefits by, by at least US $2.7 billion to $18 billion per annum. Right, so again, again, yeah, um, the, the Episode before this one? No, not episode before this one. Episode before the episode where we talked to um the we, we did the monkey crisis that's happening in St. Kitts and Nevis, right? That episode. Um one of the issues that came away from that <laughs> was uh Dr. Kerry Doer saying that St. Kitts need to move away at need to move away from tourism. Right, we need to. They really need to move away from tourism and Jamaica. Tourism and backside, it's a little on it back. Like diverse the funds, diverse the economy. Move away from it. Just let's not be dependent on it. So yeah, but again, read the document. It, it's a very, uh, as I said before, it's scary because as someone who belongs in the Gen Z population, fifty years down the line, you know, want to see this. You know, want to see what gonna happen. 
um when we destroy our, our environment and even if no one really document daylight come goes through that as well of what happened um when we don't care about our environment when we take it when we so-called call development right um yeah so diana as we wind down um last year october that's even last year october may run them time there, last year may you know and then come back again in october we saw the work um that you alongside um janelle tomlinson you don't know the whole you know the young climate yeah. you change um council of jamaica yeah. um Puerto Bieno, cockpit country. I understand the frustration. I get the frustration. I get it. <laughs> um, how, how is that? How is that been going with trying to get the government to see you? It's not basic common sense. It's basic logic that 100 jobs is not an excuse for repeating a whole, um, the whole, a whole space. All in the sake of mining. So how was how was that work being done? So the, both both um the Puerto Buena Mata and the Copper Country uh, mining in Copper Country are both now the subject of court cases. Mm-hmm. So legal action has been filed. Um, you know we have a constitutional right to a healthy and productive natural environment. Yep, that's in the constitution. That's yep, in in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So. Mm-hmm. Legal cases have been filed for both in, in regards to both Puerto Bueno and Copic Country. So, you know, once something is in court, you're not you're not allowed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I am waiting very anxiously to see what the results of those legal cases will be. One of the things I don't know and I haven't been able to find out to know is what kind of time frame are we looking at for a decision? Because sometimes court cases can take a long time, right? Yeah, and Jetta's filed court cases, which did not stop the development from going ahead, right? They were more asking the court to rule on sort of matters of policy. And although the, co- the court cases were successful, they did not stop the development from going ahead because that is not what we ask the court to do. We ask the court to look at the process by which the development was approved. And the court said, no, that is, a, that is not, a, not a good process. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know because because I'm not the one filing the suit. I don't know the details of what these two lawsuits are asking the court to consider. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long it will take before they are heard. But because I've been doing this a very long time now, I really do feel that taking matters to court, especially on constitutional matters, saying that this is all a right that we have. We have a right to clean air, fresh water supplies, a good quality of life in the land. None of us should be sacrificed, you know. If we have environmental laws, they should be adhered to. The environmental regulators should do their job. I think going to court about those things is a very important step to take. It is a very hard step to take as somebody who has done it. You get a lot of criticism and flack and even threats. But I think, I, think, I think there are gains to be made that way. Other, the other important thing is exactly what you are doing and what Janelle and Eleanor and Dana Lynn and the, the, the younger people, Gavin, people I've seen much more vocal now in the last, I would say, probably five years and when I first started out, that is very critical because you, this is a young people fight. Make no mistake about it. I'm not going to be around to see the, the outcome of this. So don't think that you talking to your friends and you showing up at a public meeting or you writing a letter to the newspaper or you doing a podcast like the one you're doing, don't think it has no impact. It does. You just sometimes have to wait to see the impact. It don't happen overnight. But what I think about it is like, it's like you're building, a, you're building something and at first you do the foundation work, you know? And if you are standing in the field where that is happening, all you see is a whole lot of churned up mud. But somebody who can stand back a bit for it and wait will see the shape of the building taking place and the building will come. Now, it's not a very good metaphor for talking about the environment, but you understand what I'm saying? People need to raise their voices. Regular people, they don't need to be no expert in nothing. They just need to say, you know what? I drove past this and I don't agree with it. Or my auntie lived next to this and this is how she was treated. 
or I know my cousin have asthma and everybody in her school have asthma. Ordinary people need to speak out. Young mm -hmm. people especially. Mm -hmm. Join um, environmental groups, you know. I mean, we're not very good at sort of, you know, I don't know, being very cool, I guess I would say. <laughs> but join environmental groups. You're concerned about these matters. Most of them cheap, you know, just become a member, participate. Mm -hmm. a volunteer go and do some volunteering mm -hmm. and um, small things plug here for persons um or footprint ja that's the official um the official social media handle um for the jamaica climate change youth council um uh diana lynn i hope i'm Hope I'm pronouncing your name correct. Dana Lynn has a podcast, um, Global Yardi, where she speaks to um different climate change um activists. Um yeah, so you guys can check that out as well. And I know I mean I really know when the episode they are drop, but if it dropped before the eighth of March a March, she um Dana Lynn is going to be on uh a thing speaking about women leadership and climate change. The poster is on our website. Just click yes. We have a new thing on our website. It's called gatherings. And it's um it's a, a accumulation of events that's happening, virtual events that's happening um in Jamaica, um, with Jamaicans, about Jamaica, about stuff that affect Jamaica, where we believe our tenants, you don't know because we're a yard, we believe our tenants will like to tune in so you guys can check that out. As well, um Jamaica Environment um Trust, they have signing up. Um is that how much up? Is that, is that, like, I think a thousand dollar for the youth. That's right. A thousand dollars a year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sign up, you know, do some beach cleaning. There was a the beach clean up the other day. I mean, do some stuff. You understand, COVID, but still can do some stuff. And um, if that is too much to bear, um, call the MP, talk to your MP. You understand, you know, like this, talk to them. And if you don't have them, contact again. It's all over Tenement Yard Media page, all 63 MP. Them number, them, them email address. Who them is, who them locate, they all over on my page. You understand? Just click and go on landlord reps. Look which parish you're in. Click the parish and you that. Them picture over everything for them over there. You understand? We started to hold phone. So if you can't do none of that, go and complain. You don't know. And I, I am an advocate for complaining. That's all I'm an advocate for. I complain. Complain a lot. There's a ton of things in Jamaica to complain about. Do it. So, yeah. Um, Diana. Um, thank you so much for coming on again. Um, as someone who studied environment and a direct um correlation that human that human um development has on the environment, I understand your frustration. As I said, you have been doing this for a while. Long time. <laughs> but it's so, but it's so hopeful now. You know that you were able to run through all of those people doing the same kind of work you're doing. It the new kinds. Of, when I started, no social media never did exist. You know, you could know it. Mm -hmm more than five people at a time so it's really encouraging to see all of this happening and and i love the creativity that is happening now which was not around when i first started doing this work and 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 it's just really cool I, i'll tell I, the last thing i say to you is this you know i felt alone for a lot of these 30 years mm -hmm. but in the last little while i don't feel alone anymore <laughs> all right <laughs> got you got you and and really thankful for the work that you have done. As I said before, um, anything to do with the environment, I see it on my TV. That's what I'm saying. They know where they're there. Right, really. Clearing up TV and CV. Seven and nine. Clearing up that. But yeah, so um, very much um, thank you for the work that you have done. And and continue doing, to be honest yeah. with you. And thank so you thank many, you for having me. Yeah, man, there's so many climate change um advocates and activists whose name I'm not even can call because there's tons of them. Um really, really and truly I appreciate all the work that you have done. And as I said before, do I be my name at this point, please? <laughs> like please, mm -hmm. please. Um Perennial Charles Jr., he's the, the Minister of Climate Change and Housing. Um and who is my name? Um I want to say my name to you, I think. Mr. Montague, I think. Ah, Robert Montague. Transport and mining, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, with that being said, um, people who are listening to that and have access to them, like, yo, like, we don't want to do this in the next 50 years, diverse the economy, invest in agriculture, because we really actually don't want to do this. We don't want, there are certain, I've said this many times, there are certain conversations on this podcast I do not want to have back. I do not want to be having in the next couple of years. I really do not want to be happy with them, right? Because, and I come on, I, I basic logic, 
basic logic. You don't have to be in academia or be this, have letters behind and in front of your name to understand that, yo, this industry has passed the time. It has definitely passed the time. Understand, as I was saying before, the, the, the social cost that it has had on the environment, our population, human health, far outweighs the economic, economic benefits that it has on our economy. That. You see, this is why English is not my thing. <laughs> but, Christina, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on again. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Um, again, um, we go, are going to link all of the publications of um, of Jamaica Environment Trust on our website. Um, when episode drop, you can just view it and take it directly to the link. Um, couple other articles about what's happening. If you're not in tune of what took place on the period of Bieno, we're going to have articles around that as well, so you guys can keep up to date. We are trying always not making it not making it confused about anything that we talk about. So a lot of those nices are going to be on the website. And then we're probably gonna of course we're going to link um Jamaica Environment Trust, their page on it so you guys can go ahead and check out more publications that they have done. Um so yeah, Zin, I'm Davy. Um another episode of Checkmate. Um thank you so much for listening. I'm gonna end out as usual with Protege. So yeah, thank you. Babylon will hear my voice, go with the ass of the truth and right.